Welcome to Inside the Hive. You're here with Joe Hagan and Emily Jane Fox. Emily, it is a solemn day in America. Ugh. I don't. I feel like that's the only. That sound is the only thing I can muster. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Take. We got to take a deep breath and try to uh, ground ourselves because things are moving so quickly. There's been so much trauma this week. I mean, talk about highs and lows. You had this uh, two senators, uh, Democratic senators winning in Georgia, which instantly changed the political equation in this country. And then we have, you know, the lowest point in modern history, certainly in our lifetime, with this attack by Trump and his whatever you want to call these people. So it's a mob, right? It's a mob, you know. They're um, terrorists. That's what I would like to call them. The terrorists, right. And, you know, today on the podcast, I'm going to be talking to Mark Elias, who was the uh, the lawyer for the DNC who fought so many court battles to give uh, voters the right to vote and then battled the Trump campaign after the fact to make sure that those votes counted. And, you know, that was that work for democracy, all that work um, has arrived at this flashpoint in which we understand the real value and gravity of voting and the consequences of democracy and the voice of the people. I mean, these things are, everybody's talking about this right now, I get it, but uh, last night, like a lot, like you and probably a lot of people, I'm watching uh, the certification of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the Senate and in, in, in Congress. And you've got these seven senators and 121 Congress people dissenting. And I, and, you know, if I were to uh, sort of, um, you know, crystallize what I feel, the rage I feel, it's towards those people who, after seeing the consequences of spreading lies and conspiracies, still voted to dissent, uh, you know, because, as if— it would be great for them to continue having a madman as president. I just found that so stomach-terming, so horrible. And, uh, you know, lastly, let me just say, we get into this in my interview with Mark Elias a little bit, but uh, people are very angry uh, with these people who attacked the Capitol and broke things and stole things, and a person was killed. You know, four people died. But the onus, the, 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 the responsibility for this goes to the top. It goes to the top, to President Trump himself and his lackeys in Congress and his lackeys on Fox News. And um, I know that by the time people are listening to this podcast, uh, you know, the consequences of that are going to begin to unfold, and I hope that they— go in the direction of justice. Well, the those people at the top, uh, whether they are in the White House, in the cabinet, in the Congress, on television, they are the root and they are the rot. And I hope that they are treated accordingly. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I frankly, I don't know what should happen. I go back and forth a lot. I think there are 
moral and constitutional things that should be upheld. And then I think that there are practical safety concerns to some of the things that could happen. Um, It is 13 days until Joe Biden takes office. And do you want to further inflame these people who already acted as a violent mob in the U.S. Capitol? So there, there are some real questions there about what the best course of action is right now. But what I think is unquestionable is that these were terrorists. They were absolutely inflamed by our president, by his family, by his uh, hangers, by his lawyers, by his hangers on in the administration and in Congress. And I know what the history books will say about these people. I have zero doubt how history will look upon them. I just hope in the now that people are willing to call it as we see it and to really hold these people responsible and also do a ton of soul searching about, you know, we had a fair election. And even though there are some people in Congress who wanted to claim without evidence that we didn't, um, there are people who knew that we have a fair election and are still rioting and they just didn't like the outcome. So what as a country are we going to do to get rid of the anger and the hurt so that that even if you don't like the outcome of an election, you are not storming the Capitol with weapons and an intent to destroy. It's just, I don't know how we, got, I do know how we got here because we elected President Trump, but it just, that that's the thing that makes me sad and scared and why I'm desperately looking forward to, to hearing your conversation because the obviously we were all so scared about the prospect of having an election that was not free and fair. We got over that hump. We were then scared about, well, is this going to be overturned in the court? And thanks in large part to Mark Elias, it wasn't. And so we got over that hump. And now we had a free and fair election. The courts upheld that that process and people are still trying to overturn it. And that's what's scary. And there feels like there's so much unknown about it. And that's kind of what I'm feeling today. I know what everyone is feeling today. It feels very heavy. I'm working on a story about um, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner now. And sort of the, the fallout for them. I know I keep saying all the time I'm so desperate to not write about them anymore and just keeps happening. One day, one day. Um, what I think is really interesting is you started to see some people who have publicly been quiet about their association with the Trump family. And in the last 24 hours, you've seen them make very small gestures to, to coming out. And I don't think this is a brave act at all. I think it's pretty cowardly. But what it signals to me is that they're done, that the, the Trump brand is done because these people have been cowards and have been quiet this entire time through all the rest of the shit that we lived through. But they've stayed quiet because the Trumps are powerful, right? They're a big brand and it's just easier. It has been easier for them to say nothing, even though that's not been the right thing. It's now easier. It's harder for them to say nothing because the brand is so toxic. So I think the same thing is true for what Facebook is doing and what Twitter has done. That's right. And you see people who have been in the cabinet for four years resigning. These people didn't suddenly grow a spine or suddenly find out, oh, Trump is dangerous. Everyone has known this for four years. It is now 
less useful for them to stay quiet and more useful for them to do something about it. And that's how you know the Trump brand has shifted. And I don't think it ever goes back. Yesterday was the day that the Trumps were done forever. I, I mean, I, I hope I'm not wrong about that. I hope more than anything I'm not wrong about that. But I really I feel right. like a I time the, shift. The, yeah, the prospect of him running again, done. The prospect right? of, of Senator I, Ivanka Trump is over. That's done. I also think that Ted Cruz um, and these others who thought they were going to ride, you know, the Trump mob into, you know, their own presidential prospects in 2024, I don't think there's any future to that. And we're going to see this GOP split and there's going to be a huge battle royale about where the line is going to be drawn. And we can already see, you know, the the kind of um, spectrum, right, from Tom Cotton, who just he went up right to the line <laughs> and then drew it, and others who didn't draw it at all and continue to uphold this conspiracy, fantasy, fictional horseshit. And, you know, on the very opposite side on the GOP is probably Mitt Romney, right, who looks like a, you know, saint, uh, you know, a, a bastion of reason and enlightenment compared to the rest of this party, which probably means he doesn't have a chance or a future in the GOP. But uh, I think um, the upside of everything we're seeing right now, if we can grab from the jaws of of this tragedy uh, some, something to hang on to that's positive, is that in 12 days, uh, if you're listening, it's 12 days from now, uh, there's going to be a new president. The Democrats are going to be in control of the government. Joe Biden is a calm, steady guy who does not go out of his way to inflame the opposition. And to the degree that um, that works, it's what we need right now. And to talk about what is the long-term consequences for Trump and his family, I do think, and Mark Elias and I talk about this a little bit in the interview you're about to hear, that there has to be uh, some justice here for President Trump and some consequences for him. And the beauty of the law in our justice system and the institutions that he's attempted to destroy is that we can have an open, you know, uh, investigation, an open inquiry. We can do it in the court system and have everybody see the facts, you know. And whatever, however it comes out in the wash, people need to know that the law is, has meaning, and I'm hoping today Merrick Garland was made the attorney general or actually, you know, nominated as the attorney general for uh, the Biden administration. I'm hoping that the kind of calm, centrist sort of positioning of these uh, of Merrick Garland and frankly, Joe Biden himself is, you know, he's not a wild haired liberal. I'm hoping they can bring some calm and sense of um, that if, you know, that if we follow the rules and we bring Trump to justice, it will be meaningful for the majority of people to see and that they will believe it again, right? We have to restore faith. Hallelujah. Amen. I couldn't agree more. Uh, faith is hard to find. Uh, I think that Joe Biden said something like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really botch his quote, but, but sometimes you see faith the most in the dark, and I think we are definitely in the dark, and 
You're helping me see the faith here. So let's get to your talk with Mark Elias. I can't wait to listen to it. I know everyone is going to be excited. He's our our second time guest. We're happy to have him back. And we have some really great guests lined up for the next few weeks. We're really excited. So as we're all miring through all of this muck, uh, we hope to be a little bit of a, a bright spot here. We're always here for you guys. And let's get to it. Welcome, Mark, to Inside the Hive. Uh, appreciate you having having you here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a solemn day in America, a frightening one. Uh, we're in the middle of one of the most consequential moments in our lifetimes, in modern history. It's a, you know, you had a virtual coup attempt yesterday by Trump followers, a literal coup, part of a uh, attempt by uh, the Trump allies, even elected officials to stop uh, the certification of Joe Biden uh, by Congress yesterday. Let me just start by getting your reaction, Mark, to what we saw yesterday in the Capitol. I mean, what we saw yesterday in the Capitol was uh, shameful and will be a dark moment um, in American history because the, the foundation of the dream and hope of America, what makes America exceptional, is um, its commitment to democracy and the peaceful transfer of power. Um, it is literally what made the end of George Washington's uh, term, second term, um, so extraordinary was that he he stepped down and peacefully transferred power. And we've done that ever since through, um, through peacetime and wartime, through uh, cases where situations where the Supreme Court decided the outcome of the election. And what we saw yesterday was an armed coup attempt to disrupt that peaceful transfer of power. Let's be clear about what it was. It was a um, it was the storming of the Capitol while the Capitol was in the process of certifying the results of the Electoral College for the purpose of stopping that from taking place. So this wasn't just some random day in which uh, you know a mob formed outside of the Capitol and decided to go inside no. and take selfies. This was meant to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. It was planned. It was it was planned online by Trump followers and then and by Trump and instigated by him and his, you know, lawyer, his son on a stage outdoors in the Capitol telling people fight, you know, go fight for it if you don't like it. it it's it's uh, I, I stand still, you know, 24 hours later, um, just horrified and shocked by it all. And, and I should have said at the top of this conversation, Mark, that you're returning to Inside the Hive. You were here last June, and I'm, I was reading through the transcript of our conversation along with Dale Ho of the ACLU about how so much of what we're seeing, uh, you, you basically, it was uncanny. You predicted in a lot of this. I mean, there was, there was a fear all along that this could happen. And, you know, the, the, the defense that we had was in the courts to make sure the election was fair. And, uh, and now here we are. I mean, last night, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, who either implicitly or explicitly supported Trump's attempt to overthrow this election, tr desperately trying to put the genie back in the bottle last night, you know, to quell their ranks and the GOP members who were... Uh, going to try to, you know, oppose 
the certification of the election. What did you think when you heard Lindsey Graham last night? Well, so, you know, I thought that when I heard Lindsey Graham, I thought this is a little too little too late. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham has been nothing but an enabler of Donald Trump's autocratic tendencies and his, you know, bizarre behavior. And so to hear Lindsey Graham last night, you know, fine, I'm glad you voted the way you did, but, you know, no one needs a lecture from you about democracy. And with respect to McConnell, I'm going to take a somewhat um, harsher view there than I think most are taking. You know, I I thought the most important thing McConnell said throughout all of this was not his speech last night, but was when he said that this was a vote of conscience, which is, I think was interpreted by some to suggest that he was saying how important it was to vote um, in favor of democracy. I heard something quite different. Um, When the Senate majority leader wants to get his caucus in line, he doesn't call it a vote of conscience. Right. He says this is a party vote. This is one that that tells that that party that the party insists you take. It is how Mitch McConnell maintains party discipline on the floor. When he needs his entire conference to vote his way, he gets his entire conference to vote his way. You know, I, suggest, right. I suggested yesterday that if you know, when people were saying he's trying really hard to get Josh Hawley to stand down, I suggested two ideas. Number one, tell Josh Hawley that if he that if he doesn't stand down, um, he will no longer have committee assignments. It's entirely up to Mitch McConnell. Whether That's or not- right. He had the lever. He had a lever. Yep. Second is say that you'll move the, that Mitch McConnell will file a motion to expel. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, the leader, the lead, Mitch McConnell had a lot of tools at his advantage. And instead, what he did is he said, this is a vote of conscience. And now let me give a nice uh, speech to the cameras. Yeah. Yeah. The cynicism is deep. And, uh, you know, not that anybody uh, is shocked that Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell is cynical, uh, but you keep wondering, and as we have wondered all along, where will the line be drawn? You know, at what point do they give up the ruse? That is clearly a ruse. They don't. You know, they don't. I mean, yeah. the, fact is, the fact is, yesterday, um, an armed mob stormed the Capitol and put their lives at risk, um, put the life of the vice president at risk. Uh, and uh, at least one individual I saw was 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 um, uh, died as a result of uh, a gunshot yeah. wound. Um, and yet last night we were still watching over 100 Republican members of the House um, uh, and, uh, you know, seven members of the U.S. Senate still spewing their nonsense. And, and many of the other senators and members of Congress saying, basically, I agree with the nonsense. I'm just not going to vote this way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it was seven senators, 121 members of Congress dissented last night, either, either on Arizona or Pennsylvania. Yeah. To basically de facto give credence to Trump's claims, but also you know, what they're saying is we would like more Trump, sure. that we would like him to stay in office despite what we saw today. That's what shocks me. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not shocked anymore. Yeah, I, well, and that the running out of shock is probably the, you know, the saddest part of it all. That you know? is that is the 
that will be the legacy of Trumpism in the Republican Party. And maybe, unfortunately, for at least some period of time, as we think about our restoring our democracy, that may be a lasting legacy there as well. Yeah. You know, I I was heartened today, at least, to, to hear that, you know, the FBI and the D.C. Metro Police and other authorities are seeking out the people that broke into the and the Capitol yesterday. And they did a lot of damage. They scared people. They broke windows. They stole things. But, you know, that stuff can be repaired, as some people have pointed out. What can't be repaired is what these Congress people did last night. You know, they, on top of the, the breach of security, added insult to injury to, and did further damage to the democracy by continuing to dissent from what is clear about this election, which is that it was fair, that everybody, it was checked and double-checked. Republicans who controlled, you know, state elections affirmed it, and these people's votes against it were not based on facts. They were based on on the conspiracies that had brought us here in the first place to this violence. I, I mean, and I thought as I was watching it and thinking about talking to you today, Mark, that it's just got to be doubly offensive for you, a personal offense. I mean, this is your life's work, is to stand up for the the integrity of this uh, it, it, it democracy. Is, it is. And it's also offensive because they were talking about cases and circumstances that I obviously was involved in litigating. And um, it just, in many instances, bore no resemblance to the truth. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a small, a very, very small example. Again, to... to, to a number of Republicans who actually were voting against proceeding forward would say, well, there, there, you know, there were clearly instances of fraud, but no court found that there was sufficient fraud to change the outcome of the election. Mm-hmm. And so here is the deal. No court found any fraud, any, no court yeah. in the 62 cases that Donald Trump and his allies brought to court and lost. Not a single judge found a single vote that was fraudulent. None. Zero. So, you know, the Republicans are even now still invested in trying to salvage the kernel of Trumpism, even if they are trying to distance from the tactic. But I agree with you. The worst of of the worst are the ones who, who, uh, you know, voted against it. But there were very few, you know, Mitt Romney said clearly that we need to stop lying to, you know, people about that. And I thought, I thought, you know, Senator Romney deserves real credit for that. And actually, uh, you know, Liz Cheney issued a, 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 a report of sorts a few days ago, which, you know, kind of took apart the, the Republican claims of fraud that I thought was, uh, I thought was good, good for her. Yeah. 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 I was, I mean, any instance in which, you know, that both sides are coming together on the same issue and, and, you know, here we are, it's like hit the emergency button. It doesn't get any more, um, alarming than this moment. You, if they don't come together now, they never will. Right. And which was all the more kind of distressing to see that even under the most dire circumstances, you've got this group who, you know, I don't like to spin out too far into, um, you know, wild conspiracies myself or make analogies that are too broad to Nazis. <laughs> but 
how can you have this block who are basically um, choosing uh, Trump over the system of government that they purport to be representing? And I, I find it, uh, you know, I don't know what the recourse is for all of these people. They're just going to have to be voted out in the next election. But if people don't believe in elections, then right. here you are again. Right. This is Inside the Hive. Let's talk for a minute about, you know, we, we've heard about the cases that you won. And congratulations to you on those court cases. And, and we're talking about post-election court cases. But before the election, you were involved in many more, right? Um, Correct. And these were about, tell me what, looking back now at the court cases up until the election that had to do with mail-in voting and state-by-state figuring out the rules of the road for how those states would vote, what were the most significant uh, cases in terms of what happened before the election? Sure. So I think there are a couple of ways to, to, to judge that. One is to say in absolute terms, which were the most important cases. Um, And then the second is to say, well, in retrospect, in relative terms Mm -hmm. to the outcome of the election, which were the most important cases. So in in the first category, you know, I think we we won some really, really significant cases that enfranchised lots and lots of voters who otherwise would have been disenfranchised in the middle of the pandemic. You know, the 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 early victory we had against the witnessing requirement in Minnesota, I think, is an example of that. Um, you know, Minnesota law has a requirement that every absentee ballot be witnessed. We sued over that, <clears throat> prevailed, and you know that that probably was a big deal in terms of numbers of voters. In in Montana, we we struck down the state's ban on um, third party ballot collection, which you know really served to disenfranchise rural populations and in particular Native American populations. Um, Uh, So that was really significant. Um, North Carolina, um, you know, the Republicans, people forget, but pre-election, the the state, the two states that were most heavily litigated um, pre-election were Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And North Carolina, we had an absolute dogfight um, that went up to the Supreme Court a couple of times. um, And we prevailed on um, our, uh, on upholding the consent decree we had entered into with the state over um, their vote by mail system. Um, But obviously in retrospect, you'd have to say that the most significant victories that we had were either um, uh, in Pennsylvania or Georgia. And, you know, what's interesting is in, I think as history is written in retrospect, um, the president has railed against our, um, uh, the consent judgment we got in, uh, in Georgia over signature matching that, you know, lowered the rates of rejections of signature mismatches. Um, the right. Republican Party and his allies have brought at least five, maybe probably more than that, actually, separate lawsuits challenging that consent decree. Um, and the president has railed against it. The Republican Party's railed against it. There were people in the House last night railing about it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so I think in retrospect, when you say what what was outcome, what was important to the eventual outcome of the uh, right. You'd probably say Georgia because there were two set very close Senate uh, 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 races that were won by the Democrats narrowly, and of course the presidential. Yeah. Well, and I, I, 
to point out a, a little ray of good news this week, the, the, the um, Georgia election uh, seemed like the wins by the Democratic uh, candidates were large enough that there's not going to be another, um, you know, I don't know how much protest. Do uh, you have any any sense of if there, whether there's going to be any protest of those votes? I, I, I really doubt it, um, candidly. I've not heard of any. Yeah. And um, they're outside of the recount margin in, in Georgia. The, the margin for recount is 0.5%. And, and they're both actually... Um, uh, outside of that margin by a, by, you know, they're close, but, but not that close. Um, so I'd be, I'd be very surprised if we saw any further, um, activity there. Yeah. One of the things that I I was struck by a lot of the, um, people in Congress mentioned in their speechifying last night that a lot of these cases went before judges who had been appointed by Donald Trump. And I'd like to just sort of unpack what that has meant to you. I mean, Three to six months ago, would at you as a lawyer who's gone before judges in cases uh, similar to these many times in your career, like, do you go in with a sense of trepidation about a judge who has been appointed by you know the, the other party? Is there do you factor in some level of uh, concern that they're going to give more sympathy or credence to the uh, you know the opposing party? How did you feel going into see? lawyers who were Trump appointed in these important cases? Yeah. So um, it's interesting because I have a um, slightly different philosophy about this than than I think most uh, lawyers do. Um, I actually wrote a piece um, uh, on, on Democracy Doctor just before the election, and it actually was timed with the low point from my standpoint of, of my morale and confidence and all of that, um, yeah. which was in late October. Um, it was right after Justice Ginsburg had passed away. Um, Justice Barrett had not yet um, been sworn in, but was, it was I think it was like on the eve of her being sworn in, uh, or I'm sorry, being confirmed. Um, so she had not yet taken the bench. And the, the narrative in the press, and particularly among people on the left, were, we're never going to win anything. Like all the look at all the cases we're going to lose on appeal. Look at all the cases we are losing on appeal. And at that point, you know, North Carolina was still touch and go. Like I said, it was being very heavily litigated. It was going back to the Supreme Court. Pennsylvania was going back to the Supreme Court. You had a lot of cases that were really, really critical to what looked to be the outcome of elections that were in the courts of appeals and in the Supreme Court in Texas. You may remember there was a last minute lawsuit. Um, in which um, they tried to ban, they tried to throw out 120,000 ballots that had been cast in Harris County through a drive-through. I remember that. Yeah. yeah, and that was a point that was assigned to like literally the most conservative judge in yeah. in Texas, right? So, so there was this dark moment, and what I wrote has um, really been my philosophy, which is that I don't have the luxury of of engaging in that, like I, you know. I think if I were in a different field of law, I could sort of say, oh, well, you know, the bench is not particularly good here. And, you know, we could wait for more of these judges to retire or whatever. Like, I don't have that. Like, I've got to play the field as it is. Like, I, and, right. and so, and so I am very cognizant of who the judges are and I am aware of their prior rulings. I do a lot of research on that. 
I do a lot of research on cases that they have decided that are doctrinally similar or not similar. And obviously I know whether they were appointed by Trump or Clinton or Obama or Bush or whomever. Um, you know, I try to have a really good sense of where they are um, jurisprudentially um, and what they're, what they're um, and, and how to position a case that will appeal to the judges as they are. So sometimes my litigation, I think, looks a little more small ball than grand because I am, you know, I, I am, I am really in the business of trying to win individual cases, particularly when you're that close to the election. So yeah. I'm less interested in establishing a precedent for the future. And I'm more interested in just trying to get the relief for voters in the here and now. So in the pre-election phase, that's how I approached it. In the post-election phase, it was actually quite interesting because there were times where when you did that analysis, you actually came to the conclusion, you know what, this Trump judge is actually a really good judge for us. Like he is not going to jurisprudentially support a radical expansion of judicial involvement in, in elections, right? In, in the same way that you heard Mike Lee and others say, you know, as conservatives, why do we want Congress playing this role in, in the, in the, yeah. In the state certifications. So, you know, I was very cognizant of it. And um, definitely in the pre-election period, there were some cases we lost that I thought, you know, assignment of judge may have cost us it. In the post-election, you know, I, I thought our cases were really strong and it, it affected a little bit how we pitched them to the judge, you know, how we framed them to the judge. But I, I never I never really thought we were going to lose those cases. Right. And tell me, were you in the room for some of these, you know, just in these pandemic times. I don't know how these things um, happened in, in physical space. Yeah. So they were almost all remote. In fact, one of the, one of the transformations, you know, we've all seen transformations in our lives as a result of the pandemic. Um, one of the transformations in the judicial system has been how adept courts have gotten to doing remote hearings. You know, a year ago, yeah. a remote hearing was unheard of. And by the way, when you if you did it, it was by phone. It was never by video. And now courts all have very elaborate, you know, video systems. So there were still some in court hearings, but the vast, vast, overwhelming majority uh, were um, via uh, Zoom or WebEx or something like that. And it really transformed um, the ability to cover as many cases as my team and I did, because you know you didn't have to travel. You didn't have to travel to. Uh, a, a, a court, right? You could, you could, do yeah, yeah. So I, I actually, from my standpoint, hope that you know, once this terrible pandemic is over, I'm, I'm hoping courts keep the Zoom option more available, and also it allowed the press and the media to see, you know, there are mm -hmm. cameras in most federal courts, but most of the federal courts allowed the media to uh, be able to look to, in, to look, yeah. So I thought it was, I thought it was good for transparency, also. Were any of these cases, um, did you face any of the sort of Trump's higher profile lawyers like Giuliani himself, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, were these people in these Zooms or did they put, you know, lower level lawyers in? Yeah. So um, Ellis, as far as I know, never entered an appearance in any case. I, I, I don't mean that critically. Um, yeah. I have lots of things I can critically say, but I don't actually think <laughs> yeah. she was on the papers for any of these cases, no less in the, in the, uh, in the in the courtroom. Um, uh, 
uh, Rudy Giuliani famously did one case, uh, and it was he was in the courtroom. I was on Zoom. Uh, I was a hybrid, and that was the Pennsylvania case um, that he lost, where that where he got excoriated by both the conservative Federalist Society district court judge and then uh-huh. then the okay. Trump appointed Third Circuit judge. Um, right. Uh, and I think that with that, uh, they decided better than better of having Rudy Giuliani um, argue stuff. Uh, it was not a particularly good performance. I'm not usually critical of other lawyers argument, but his was really not good. Um, and then Cindy right. Powell was um, you know, she was uh, involved in all the Kraken lawsuits, the crazy conspiracy cases involved right. in Hugo Chavez. And most of those, I think maybe all of them, maybe all but one, uh, the judges didn't give them hearings. Um, they didn't write the papers. Um, so, Yeah, I can imagine these judges, no matter who they were appointed them, had to be rolling in their eyes at some of this. It's like a waste of the court's time if it wasn't about the most consequential election in history. This is Inside the Hive. You know, I one of the things that I want to point out to the people listening to this podcast is that, you know, underlying your efforts in 2020 in these courts was an attempt to enfranchise people of color, especially in places like Georgia and, and, and other states. And do you agree with me? I, I thought this today and I've thought it in the last few days that black voters in this country, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, saved this country from four more years of this monster. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and 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 um, uh, and as well as flip the U.S. Senate. I mean, as well as flip- absolutely. And and if it hadn't been for their ability to, you know, the the mail-in voting was crucial. Uh, you know, one of the things you said to me uh, last June was that. You know, people needed to be patient on election night because the the nature of mail-in voting is it was going to take her longer to tabulate and that, you know, the Democratic votes would come in late as a result, right? And this is what Trump jumped on this to try to pretend these were all fraudulent votes, which put, you know, in a in a kind of uh, that allowed him to open up this conspiracy, right? Um, and, and in the end that, uh, you know, the mail-in voting and it's was ends up being uh enormously crucial for these black voters is that accurate you think i mean sure i mean look mail-in voting became critical for all populations relative to the past right so if you if you look at 2018 or 2016 you look at 2020 you're going to see vote by mail rates were up across the board you're going to see though that it was up more among african-american voters relative to past performance than uh, than it was white voters. And there are a variety of reasons for that, ranging from the, um, the effect of COVID to systemic racism in the, uh, in the allocation of polling locations and the like. Um, uh, but yeah, no, there's no question. Yeah. Um, well, that's why the uh, opponents of these tools, these voting tools, uh, you know, and, and what we saw yesterday and the underlying opposition in the, in, in the Trump world has been pointedly 
racist, uh, in my opinion. Um, and, and there's a civil rights element to this that I think, uh, you know, you must have felt that or experienced that on some level, that that's, that, that was partly what's at stake here. Absolutely. Look, Trumpism in its initial form was a racist attack on the first black president by saying he was not born in the United States. Right. So that was the original Trumpism, right? Um, and it morphed over time to include other things, including election allegations and the like. But at its core, it has always had a racist core, right? It was a racist mm -hmm. core in how it responded to Charlottesville. Um, it's been, it was racist in um, saying that Cory Booker would run the suburbs, God willing, by the way. I would love, I, I tweeted after the election, I, when, when, do we, when does Joe Biden uh, uh, you know, confirm uh, Cory Booker as the uh, secretary of the suburbs? It'd be great. But, right. But, right, but of all the set Democratic senators, why did, why did Trump put, pick Cory Booker? Right? So there's always been racism at the core of, of what Trump's about. And, and in voting, where there is already a dark history of racism in our voting, it became very easy for him to unleash something that was already latently there. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, but, uh, you know, again, I, nothing about what Trump has done or is doing surprises me because I think there is people keep searching for a bottom. Like, what is the point at which it's too far? There is no too far for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we're watching it. We're watching it now. I mean, even now, you know, the walls are closing in on Trump right now because it's so bad that people don't even think that we can survive another 12 days with this guy, you know? <laughs> I'm laughing, but that is that is actually a really good point. That is yeah. really good point. Like, it is, right, it is it is so bad that, like, they're not sure that, you know, yeah, the 12 days, yeah. Yeah, well, um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about what the future holds on that, but I uh, let's talk a minute for about last night. Representative Dan Bishop of North Carolina called you out on the floor uh, of the of Congress, saying you know that you were sort of the architect of a of what he called a chaos strategy to flood the courts with lawsuits and kind of you know I don't even know what he was talking about you know what his ultimate uh, takeaway was supposed to be from that but but tell me what was your response to that what do you how do you respond to what what Bishop is saying. So, you know, I, my first reaction was, who the hell is Dan Bishop? I had so I had to Google Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> someone just, yeah. I saw it on Twitter and someone said, Dan Bishop, you know, just called you out on. And I was like, okay, who's Dan Bishop? So I, yeah. I Googled him and realized he's a member of Congress. And then I realized he's from the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina, which is the district that had the Republican voter fraud that led to the overturning of the election. And I was the lawyer for Dan McCready who led that hearing that led to Mark Harris's, you know, um, you know, undoing and, and, and ultimately the special election, which led to Dan Bishop being in Congress. So I don't know if there's some lingering bad blood because Dan Bishop, you know, kind of liked the voter fraud that took place by Republicans yeah. um, or yeah. whether he's just, you know, a sort of a Louis Gohmert sort of acolyte in North Carolina. I, I don't know enough about him. I, I watched the clip and, um, you know, 
I guess, you know, in a way, maybe I should be flattered that he is attacking me for helping restore voting rights around the country. All um, right. Yeah. But I also, God forbid. But I also know how dangerous it is, candidly. You know, I mean, you know, I, I you know, it's easy to dismiss these guys as nuts. But then you get, you know, the series of voicemails and emails and uh, and uh, and social media posts. So, you know. Right. Well, they're always looking for a conspiracy. Right. Because their constituents are so vulnerable to them. Yes. Right. I have to think the craziest conspiracy of the last few days is Peter Navarro, who, you know, I never agree with Peter Navarro, but um, on anything. But, you know, I I think he came from Stanford. Like I assumed that he was kind of like a, a right wing ideologue, but not a total lunatic. He now has put out two papers about the post election, um, which are like, you know, might as well be QAnon screeds. But the right. but the second one um, uh, uh, says that the conspiracy to undermine the election was run by George Soros, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Elias. So I kind of got a kick. I kind of got a kick out of that because I was thinking, well, you know. One of these, yeah. one of these three is not like the others. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but you know, it could be that we're all. Uh, well, I'm not going to speculate what, why he chose Soros, Zuckerberg, and Elias. Well, I think we can, you know, put two and two together. This is inside the hive. Let's talk for a minute about what you think we should do right at this moment. I mean, there are a lot of remedies, being, uh, and I'm talking about Trump in particular, impeachment, invoking the 25th Amendment. Um, and, and before this, the conversation was, you know, when Biden comes into office, will there be any justice for infractions and crimes committed by this president once he's a civilian, right? You know, the 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 notion of justice, as you know better than anybody, is uh, that you know people need to be brought to justice in order for things not to happen again, to reassert the primacy of law, right, the primacy of our institutions, to be uh, you know um, to work. So, what do you think should happen? What what's your you know in a just world? What should happen right now with Trump, uh, you know, and, and what he's done to this country? Yeah. So I think um, I think there are a couple of ways that I think about this. The first is, as you say, what should be done today? Right. What should be done for the next 12 days? Yeah. And as someone, you know, who was supportive of impeaching him months ago, um, you know, I, th- I think he should be removed from office, not because it's any worse now than it was, but because it's the same now. You know, it's just like he he showed us who he was and he continues to be that person. And yes, you know, instigating a coup is is of a different degree and magnitude. Um, but I, I think he's unfit for office. I would have told you he's unfit for office a year ago. Uh, so, you know, whether that mechanism yeah. is a 25th Amendment or impeachment, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've heard kind of arguments 25th Amendment may make more sense because it moves quicker and then he can't self-pardon himself. I, but, but uh, you know, I, I am 
it, it is never too late to do the right thing. It doesn't mean we forget all the wrong things that uh, that his cabinet did, but it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, yeah. In terms of the longer term, I think that's the. I think you're. I think that you're right. I think that there's a deterrent effect. So one of the things that the Anglo-American system does pretty well, it's not perfect, um, but it does pretty well, is that it conveys a sense of fairness, that the, the magistry and the pageantry of the, our judicial system, along with concepts like due process, right to counsel, you know, all of that conveys a sense that, it, that something important has taken place and has adjudicated an outcome that people can have confidence in that it was yeah. done fair. And I think a lot of what's been missing in the Trump era is a sense that that there is a fair system judging this. And I, by the way, I think that that's even true on the right. I think that, you know, the lament you hear on the right about a rigged system. Um, and so I think that, that, that um, whatever happens next, I think a key a key factor to reestablishing re re democratic norms and institutions is a sense that you can't storm the Capitol and have a coup and then be escorted out and not arrested. Like you can't instigate a coup from the White House. Like you can't abuse power. That that it's not just a question of deterring the next president. It's it's about establishing the trust of the American people that when that happens, there will be a fair and just punishment or results or findings or, or you know, uh, analysis. Um, and I think that that's also really important. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, far be it from me to prejudge President Trump before he has had his due process under the law, um, I can envision him in prison where I believe that he belongs. Um, so you don't have to <laughs> respond to that. Um, let's talk for a minute about the legacy of what you did this year and what the future holds for you. You mentioned something a minute ago, Democracy Docket. What is that? So Democracy Docket is a, um, is a website uh, that I created in early 2020, initially actually to post um, original court filings. In other words, the to, pub, to post the actual court filings and court decisions, because I was getting so many requests from reporters about, can I send you a can can I get a copy of this? Can I get a copy of that? So I started posting them, um, and then I also had wanted a place for some time where I could write and offer ideas about voting and elections. So um, that was the original conception of Democracy Docket. Since then, it has grown into a much much bigger thing, frankly, than I anticipated, and it has really become kind of the leading platform on the left among Democrats for, you know, where you can go to find accurate information about what cases have taken place, but also rules about voting, facts, you know, FAQs about voting, state law rules about voting, um, as well as opinion pieces, not only ones that I've written, but Stacey Abrams wrote one recently. Uh, uh, Senator Klobuchar wrote an excellent one. Senator Bennett wrote a great one. Aloe Black, the recording artist. So we've really, you know, tried to open it up and be a platform where people who care about voting and voting rights and democracy can go to find information about uh, litigation and cases, information about the process, and then also 
uh, a platform for people to offer their opinions uh, and to read what people like Stacey Abrams think about why Georgia turned blue. Yeah. One of the sort of you know specious rationales that was put forth last night by some of the GOP senators dissenting uh, on the certification of Joe Biden's vote was that they felt like there should be reforms in voting laws and uh, voter rights, you know, as if this is a, you know, a matter of principle for them, right? But is that, you know, to what degree is that true in any, you know, for any political position? I mean, do you think that the voter laws as they stand um, work for everybody? Or do you, you know, obviously you believe that this election was transparent and, and did work just fine, right? So I think there are two, I think there are two questions. One is, um, uh, was the election transparent and fair? And the answer there is yes. The second is, did the voting laws work for everyone? And there, I think they worked better than they have in the past, but, but, but it is still simply the case that African-Americans face greater barriers to voting than whites yeah. do. And that people with lower income face higher barriers than people with higher income. You know, people, you know, I, I continue to be amazed at the, the indifference that many have to the long lines that we see election after election. And, and yeah. when people say, you know, but, but, you know, there's nothing you can do. I always say when there are long lines in McLean, Virginia and in Darien, Connecticut, then tell me there's nothing you can do. But there aren't long lines in Darien, Connecticut. There aren't long yeah. lines in large, in Larchmont, New York. There aren't long lines in in McLean, Virginia, right? The long lines are always where black, brown, and young voters are. So, so the answer is uh, yes. Uh, it was a free, fair, and transparent election. Can we do better? Sure, but the doing better is not what Republicans are talking about in making voting harder. Of course not. No. It's, it's about making sure that all voters are being given equal opportunity to cast a ballot, and 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 that is, I think, um, one of the challenges moving forward. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of work to do in 2021, um, and we have a lot of work to do in the next 12 days. Uh, in fact, you and I have um, probably not been looking at the headlines for the last 40 minutes that we spoke, and God knows what's even happened just in this time. Things are happening so quickly. Um, who knows what the world will look like just by the time this podcast uh, comes out. But Mark, thank you so much for coming back to Inside the Hive. It's like a pleasure to talk to you. Your work this year uh, was pretty amazing, and uh, you were on the front lines of history. So uh, I thank you for taking the time to come today. Thank you for having me, and I, oh, I hope to come back uh, and talk about more successes in the future. <laughs> 